Father God, we know that you've come to uh, set the captives free. And we know that you understand the roots of our hearts, the needs that we have, the passions that we have, the brokenness that we carry. And we pray now uh, in us, Father, you'd illuminate our propensity towards addiction. And Lord, we pray you'd educate us to see the propensity that others carry towards addiction and how we might help them out of that in your name. We pray, Father, that in all things we might be connected uh, to Christ and we might seek Christ first, that you might meet our needs in your name. Amen. Andre, over to you. Thanks, Will. Well, it's really great to see so many people here this morning, and this tells me that this is a fairly live and hot topic. I'm going to be uh, talking to you today about some of the causes of addiction. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how we might think about helping people with addiction as well, using a biblical Christian perspective. Just to say a little bit about myself, um, I work at London School of Theology, and I uh, teach on the master's courses uh, there, and also undergraduate level. And my background is really in mental health. Uh, I spent quite a few years working in that field, and uh, now I uh, hold a small private practice as a, a psychotherapist. The other thing that I've done, because I get bored very easily, I'm addicted to activity, you see, is that uh, I also have just recently finished a curacy at a, a church in North London, St. Barnabas Church in Finchley, and have undertaken now what I think is a really exciting adventure of being part of a leadership team of what I think we could probably call a network church or a home church. And I might touch on that a little bit this morning because one of the things I've been thinking about quite a bit recently is the importance for people with any form of uh, addiction, let's call it, to find a place of belonging, to find a place of community, in other words, to come home. And if you remember nothing else about what I say this morning, the key point that I'm going to come back to over and over again is that people with addictions need to come home and to be at home within themselves, but also within community. That's a key part of the healing process for somebody who's been imprisoned and held captive, if you like, by whatever the addiction happens to be. Okay, so let's just think a little bit about what we mean by the word addiction. I just want you to take a moment to, if you've got a pen and paper, you might just jot this down. But just take a moment to think in your own mind about what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word addiction. Okay, so don't censor this or edit it. You don't have to tell anybody about it. But just the first thing that comes into your head, maybe an image or word, when you hear me say addiction. Just do that now. Okay, if we could have the first slide, that would be great. Now, I don't know what words you've uh, put down. If you feel like shouting them out, here's your opportunity. Drugs. Can't give it up. Prison. Alcohol. What's that? Can't help yourself. Trapped, enslaved. What was that? Habitual? Uh, Is that a word? Habitual, <laughs> captivity, and habitual. Okay. Escapism, lost. Great. Okay, now there is a bit of a theme coming out in those words already, isn't there? And the theme seems to be something to do with imprisonment or captivity. And I think that's a key issue for people in any form of addiction, is there's a sense of being held captive. Uh, now, I think the, the light is sort of feeding into the slides, so hopefully you can see uh, enough to see that here is a boy who's very, very captivated by his computer, <coughs> which is a very common issue, isn't it? You know, the whole thing about gaming and uh, computers uh, is a real big issue, and sometimes kids get completely caught up with that virtual reality. 
I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there is a, you, put, you may be more familiar than I am, but there is a game whereby you can buy farm implements, <laughs> right? Does this ring a bell with anyone that are completely virtual? There is no actual equipment. It's all made up online. But you can spend thousands and thousands on equipment and gathering together different bits of farm apparatus. Don't ask me who thought this up. I mean, how this happens, I don't know. And people get really caught up on this, not just here, but around the world. I was teaching in Singapore recently, and it turned out that this was one of the number one problems that the youth there were struggling with, was spending hours and hours in their room buying and acquiring and building these virtual realities. Not only that, but it was big business. There was a lot of money being invested into this. And I think what happens is that people end up entering into a kind of virtual world that's disconnected from the real. And if we take God as the ultimate real, what we're talking about in addiction is a substantial and fundamental disconnection from God as the source of all reality. And that would apply to any addiction, whether it's to do with alcohol or drugs or pornography or gambling. It, it's pretty much the same, that the person becomes divorced from reality. Um, the, the definition that I'd like to give, which is the next slide, is that addiction is the state of being enslaved, there's that word again, enslaved, to an activity and experience that is psychologically or physically habit-forming. Now, uh, I wanted to highlight this kind of process of enslavement and captivatedness, uh, rather than focusing on something like, um, you know, it just being to do with drugs or just being to do with alcohol. There's so much more going on here than, than it being narrowed down to those two fields which is often what people might think of first, I probably would. When you think of addiction, you might think of somebody drunk in the street on a Friday night, or a young person who's in hospital in an A&E department on a Friday night because they've become intoxicated. So, um, moving to the next slide. There are two forms of uh, addiction. The first of these is what we might call substance addiction. And by that we mean addiction to narcotics, to alcohol, to actual chemicals that are introduced into the system of the body and alter the chemistry of the brain. Now, there are specific problems that are attached to those sorts of substance addictions, which is that if somebody is withdrawing from a substance, they might need medical intervention and help to get off it. So you may be familiar with detox programs for people who perhaps have become addicted to alcohol uh, or narcotics, whereby they may have to have medical supervision, maybe even go into hospital to gradually be weaned off their drug that they've been using. So this is where we get things like methadone clinics coming into the picture for recovering heroin addicts. So there are specific issues attached to uh, people using substances that require medical intervention sometimes. And if you're dealing with a young person who's really hooked on something uh, in terms of a substance, whether it's uh, narcotics or whether it's alcohol, and they are trying to get off it, it might be worth considering involving a GP or some kind of medical um, oversight into that process. Because it can be dangerous sometimes for anybody to just suddenly stop taking their substance of choice because the body needs a sort of time to withdraw from it. Now the thing that sometimes can get missed in this subject is what I would call process addictions. Process addictions uh, are things like gambling, spending money. I knew somebody once who had a wardrobe and in this wardrobe, I kid you not, I think there must have been about 400 pairs of shoes. I mean, more shoes than you could imagine. And they never had enough time to wear all these shoes. But they were obsessed with going out and buying shoes all the time that they possibly could. And this became a, an addiction in as much as they got totally wrapped up in the process of thinking about and buying and collecting shoes. 
Uh, eating can be an addiction. Uh, one of the specialities that I've worked in in the past is in an eating disorders unit. And I think that an eating disorder and an addiction aren't necessarily the same thing, but there's quite a lot of similarities between them. So it's worth flagging that up. We can imagine, we can imagine how easy it is to get addicted to eating too much food. Um, in our culture, we have so much food available very cheaply that if somebody wants to medicate their pain, their emotional pain, there's nothing easier than just getting hold of a lot of food and stuffing the food on top of the pain to make themselves feel a bit better. And that's becoming quite an issue uh, and it results in things like childhood obesity or obesity in uh, the young. And then of course the sexual activity which is also a very prevalent process. How many of you, I won't ask you to put your hands up, but I would be interested to know how many of you have dealt with young people who have come to you to talk to you about issues to do with pornography. I would imagine it would be quite a number of us. Not only something that affects young people, of course, this is something that's very prevalent in our culture at the moment. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that uh, with the advent of the internet, access to these sorts of materials is really fast. So somebody only has to click a button and they can access this kind of material. Not only pornography though, but also gambling. Gambling now is becoming quite a serious problem for a lot of young people because it's so easy. You can do it on your phone. You can access um, all sorts of opportunities to gamble away your money really easily. I'm sure no, none of you have ever been involved in anything like this, but um, it is very easy to get involved in. And again, when I was in the Far East recently, I discovered that gambling was becoming a serious problem. In fact, such a big problem that the government um, in Singapore was starting to devote serious money into working with that issue. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is that in process addictions, we're not talking about a chemical that's been introduced into the body. But having said that, when someone's on a high because they've been uh, anticipating putting a bet on and gambling, the, the chemistry of the brain is still affected. So they are still, in a sense, having a chemical high because there's all that adrenaline going around the system and there's all the kind of opiate-type chemicals in the brain being released. So although it's not a substance in the pure sense of the word, the experience causes people to feel high. And when people feel high, what's going on? What's going on is that they become temporarily divorced from reality. Temporarily, they lose touch with what's going on around them. So I talked to somebody, I, I, all the examples I'm giving are just like composite examples really, they're not uh, true cases, but they're drawn from the sort of thing I've heard many times. So let's imagine a guy who's uh, in his early 30s and he's married, uh, he's got young children, uh, he works for the church, perhaps he's on the pastoral team of the church, and this guy spends a lot of the nights of the week up until three in the morning watching pornography on the computer. Now, what is happening there? If you had an interview with that guy and asked him to ex sort of explain what that was like, they would probably say things like they completely lost track of time, for one thing. Time somehow compresses when someone is in a high, when they're going through a kind of high experience, a heightened experience. So one, one hour becomes like three hours and it's all sort of compressed into a very small window for that person. The other thing is that they actually feel kind of zoned out. Now this is really important because if somebody's feeling zoned out, that means that they're medicating something else. This gets us a bit further towards the causes. Why would somebody medicate themselves to such an extent that they lose track of time and they feel completely zoned out? Probably because there's some pain going on in their lives that they're not dealing with. Now, they may not be aware of what that is. Often, if we ask somebody to explain why they've taken drugs or why they've taken alcohol, 
they wouldn't really know necessarily. They might just say, because it's fun. And actually, I wouldn't diminish that, because talking to addicts over the years, one of the things that they've often said to me is, you do need to remember that it is fun. Which is kind of shocking, because the fun leads to dis despair and disaster, actually. But in the initial burst of excitement, it does actually feel like fun for the person. Not only that, but it feels like a tremendous relief. And I, I expect in the self-harm talk, they'll be talking about this as well. Many young people carry so much pressure inside themselves, such a high level of stress, that to do anything that takes the burden of that off them and brings some relief is very attractive and addictive. And that's really one of the uh, main drivers for why people get into it. Uh, let's look at the next slide. So I've said this already, really, that uh, addiction isn't just about drink or drugs. We have a, I think that would probably be a double Mac, something of that nature. You recognize that? Uh, or a Big Mac. Uh, this uh, is somebody looking at the computer. Now, they might be looking at pornography, but they might be looking at eBay. How many people get caught up with looking at eBay for hours and hours and hours? Um, now, I don't want us to kind of get condemned by any of this. I don't want us to go away thinking, oh, I didn't think I had a problem, but I, maybe I do. Um, because this is the sort of stuff that we all have some sort of involvement with. It's just part of our lives. But I'm talking about when it really goes out of control and when somebody is kind of fixated on it and it becomes the thing that they um, kind of look to to hold life together in that sense. And yes, people do get quite caught up with shopping uh, websites, eBay. Who's come across Groupon? Are you familiar with Groupon? Not many of you. Groupon is a site that sends you offers for holidays and hotels and stuff like that. Nothing wrong with that. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. But of course, sometimes people get very caught up on this sort of thing and are sort of scanning, scanning, scanning for hours. And I think there's something specific to the internet that fosters that kind of fascination. So we could be talking about drugs, we could be talking about alcohol, we could be talking about gambling, we could be talking about computer games, sex, food, shopping. I just want to mention another type of addiction which, hasn't, um, which is not unknown to those in the pastoral field. And this is an addiction to being needed. Now, I've, I've had to sort of grapple with this a bit myself because I've worked as a pastor and as a counsellor for quite a few years. And one of the things I've become aware of is that, you know, why am I doing it? What, what, why am I doing this kind of thing in the first place? And it's always a question that's worth just checking is, am I needing it a bit too much? And so some people will get very caught up with needing a relationship with somebody else. This is called codependency. And in codependency, what happens is that each person kind of needs the other person so much that they can't really cope without them. And often the nature of the relationship is a kind of helping relationship. So one person might be helping the other one. But if the other one starts to not need their help anymore and is actually fine and says one day, actually, I think I'm fine now. I don't think I really need to talk to you about my problems anymore. And actually, I'm actually moving to another country as well. Um, and I don't really need to be in contact with you anymore. That's fine. Thank you very much, but we're finishing at that point. How is this other person going to feel? They've kind of, if they've gone too far with it, built to some extent their identity around helping the other person. And this is where it gets into difficult waters. And this happens from time to time, maybe even quite a bit, in the intense relationships that young people can have with each other. You know the thing about best friends? Best friends, where 
um, there's that sense that the two are joined symbiotically somehow. Now, what happens if one of them moves school or moves college? How's the other one going to deal with that? If they've, to some extent, been building their identity around it, it can become a bit of an issue. Okay, you with me so far? Is that okay? Uh, there'll be some time at the end for questions, so if you do have any questions, uh, just jot them down and we'll take them at the end. Um, a, a way I always used describing this kind of process in addiction is that it's a little bit like being tied up to a post that's rooted in the ground on a piece of elastic. And so you can go so far, if you're an addict, you can move around to some extent, but you can only go so far before you'll come back again and you get drawn back in. And then you might go so far again, you might feel okay for a while, but then something will happen, maybe a pressure or a stress event, and then the person starts to go back in again. So it, it can be deceptive, this, because it can look like the person has a certain amount of freedom, but in fact they'll only go so far and then they'll find themselves uh, being pulled back into the centre of the addiction. And it's worth saying that because sometimes people might say to you, you know, I'm fine now, I don't really need your help anymore because I, uh, I've kicked the problem. One of the ways that this can happen in church is if somebody says, okay, I've gone for some prayer, I've had some ministry, and prayer and ministry are absolutely essential in all of this, by the way, but somebody might feel, I've had some prayer and now I'm fixed. So actually I don't need to do any more than that. Now, sometimes that's true. Sometimes people can be freed from the process of addiction really quickly. But in my experience, what can happen is somebody feels that they're free, and then they start to encounter a problem that triggers them again, and then they're going back in. And the problem with that is that the next time they go back to it, they feel so full of shame and so full of remorse because they thought they were free. So then we're dealing with not just the addiction, but we're dealing with all the shame and remorse uh, and negative thinking that comes with it. I'm just going to talk uh, a little bit about a cycle of addiction. Uh, addiction has a sort of circular type of process inside it. And the way it can start is with somebody getting triggered by something. So to give you an example, um, we might have a young person quite a good example might be what I've just been describing and they're in this really close friendship with somebody else at their school and they've been friends for a while and they talk to each other about everything you know those kind of friendships where everything gets talked about and then one of the friends for some reason leaves the school now that might be a trigger for the first person they have a kind of a gap in their lives. They have an open need in their lives that's not being filled. And that will always be somewhere in the background. So what do they do? They need to fill that gap with something. It's very difficult to stay in that place of feeling bereft, of feeling empty. So the natural thing to do is to put something into that space. And it could be food, or it could be sex, or it could be any number of different things. It could be trying to find another relationship that's very similar. But it can be triggered by a kind of deep need and a sense of, I can't cope without. I need something to fill that gap, to fill that space. So that can be a trigger. And the next thing that can happen for somebody who's addicted is that they start to think a lot about the thing that they want to use. So they might think a lot about pornography if they're a porn addict. And it becomes a bit like a trance type of state that they just can't take their mind off what they might do when they get on the computer or whatever. And then there's a sort of ritual aspect to it that the person might act out their addiction at a certain time of day or in a certain place. And then the act itself. Now, we often think that the high that people get in addictions is when they're actually acting out. But in fact, often it's on the way to acting out. So it's been shown scientifically now that gamblers get their biggest high when they're going to put the bet on, not when they're actually doing it. 
when they're anticipating doing it. So you think, you know, you're expecting uh, a lovely meal and you're anticipating going out and, um, and you can get quite excited, can't you? You can get quite into the anticipation of the thing that's going to happen. And for a lot of um, people caught up with this in an, in an addictive sense, that becomes the hook that they hold on to. And then the final part of this sort of cycle is once the person's acted out and done whatever it is they do, the tremendous guilt and shame. Tremendous guilt and shame. And for us as Christians, working perhaps with Christian young people or not Christian young people, this can be one of the most uh, difficult areas to work with. It's just the depth of shame and guilt. One of the problems with it is that it tends to lead people to be secretive. Because if people are doing something that they're ashamed of, they don't really want to tell anyone about it. Particularly if you've been talking to them or pastoring into their lives, and you've talked about this stuff before, and they've gone and done it again, how many times can they come back to you and say, I did it again. I did that thing again. I know I did it last week. I've done it this week. And for a lot of people, that's really difficult to do because they feel that eventually you're going to get fed up with it, that eventually you'll have enough and you'll um, say, I can't keep doing this. So shame and guilt becomes quite a big issue to the point that somebody might actually get triggered by their shame and guilt and go back into the cycle again to deal with those difficult feelings. <clears throat> okay, let's look at the uh, effects of addiction. Okay, sorry that the slide is slightly uh, going one way. The, the first thing to say about the effects of addiction are how the addiction affects the individual. Uh, in addictions, there's often a kind of crossover with other problems like anxiety or depression. So somebody with addiction might uh, uh, struggle also with depression, for example. Now, my, my feeling about this is that often people with ad uh, addictions have got an element of depression uh, linked in with it. If for no other reason than that once they feel sort of filled with shame and guilt, that tends to lead into feeling quite depressive about themselves. Another way of putting this, I suppose, would be to say that people tend to have very low self-esteem. They tend to feel quite badly about themselves. If you ask somebody who's an addict, just tell me about yourself. I think the chances are pretty high that they will use negative language. So they might say things like, well, I'm just this, or I'm just that, or I only do this, or, well, there's nothing really to even say about me. What is there to say? <clears throat> so the psychological impact can be quite uh, serious in terms of tipping people into other psychological problems like anxiety states or depression. Having said that, of course, people might be using their addiction as a way of medicating a depression. So people with long-term mental health issues sometimes might use something like cannabis, for example, to sort of self-medicate their bad feelings. The problem is that something like cannabis can actually trigger psychotic states. So it can lead to another lot of problems that the person may not have had to start with. So we have quite a vicious cycle going on here, which is starting off feeling bad about yourself, using an addiction to cope with it, and then having secondary problems on top. The... Um, the physical impact of, uh, of addiction uh, can be dependency. One of the markers for any kind of addiction is that the person gets used to higher and higher and higher levels of substance abuse or acting out activity to get the same high. So somebody who drank two pints to get drunk now needs to drink four, five, six before they get drunk and they stay sober for much longer. So this is, again, a quite negative impact of uh, addiction, is that people go further and further into it to get the same effects. And I would say that that's pretty similar across the board, whether it's pornography, gambling, or whatever. 
Um, uh, yeah, okay, so uh, the example that's often given of this is the alcoholic who wakes up in the morning and they're shaking. Uh, they have the kind of DTs a bit, delirium tremors, and they need a drink in order to stop the shaking, and then they're fine. So the body has started to adjust to the substance so much that it needs the substance just, in, just to be uh, functioning normally, just to be uh, at a normal stage. Now, you can imagine the effect on relationships could be fairly catastrophic. I uh, can remember somebody uh, who was a gambler, and what they did was they uh, went to the casino quite regularly and put bets on. This could be equally true of a kid with a phone who's got access to gambling websites. And this guy, uh, he put all his money on a big bet. And he thought, this will be the one that will get us out of debt. Typical kind of gang gambling mindset that there'll be the big win that will solve all the problems. And here we have what we could call magical thinking. <laughs> it's like, no, it isn't really going to happen, but the thinking is that it will. So this guy literally put a lot on a bed and lost everything. The problem was that he was married and him and his new wife had just bought a house. And then they moved into the house. And a few weeks later, the wife got a phone call at home. And the phone call was from the building society. Uh, mortgage hasn't been paid. Mystified by this because she thought they had all the money they needed to cover the house. She investigated into it and then got the classic kind of response, which was denial. Often people who are addicted to something will deny how serious it is. In other words, the left hand doesn't really know what the right hand's doing. Uh, they kind of do know, but they, they're not really even admitting it to themselves. It's not so much that they are simply denying to the other person, they're also in denial themselves as well. So this guy was completely mystified by this, had no idea why they would be in this kind of situation. And then a few more weeks went by, and in fact, the house ended up getting repossessed. And then it all came out that he'd lost all the money, and devastating for this relationship, and it took them a few years to get over this kind of betrayal, which is how she felt, that she'd been let down, betrayed, and uh, that she couldn't really trust him anymore. And this is a really common reaction in people who are in the family of someone who's an addict. It's very common for people who are involved with sex addicts that they feel let down, betrayed, and so forth. But it's true of anything. So that's why we've got groups like Al-Anon, which is probably worth you knowing about, Al-Anon. And that's like a, an AA type of group for families of people with uh, addictions, particularly alcohol addiction. And you might find yourself pastoring or working with kids who haven't actually got an addiction themselves, but they might be in the family of somebody with an addiction. They might have a brother or a sister with an addiction, or a father or a mother. And in my experience, it can be really um, quite a big issue if somebody's growing up in a family where there's a parent who's got an addiction. Because what happens then is everybody tiptoes around them. Everybody is on eggshells in case they set off their addiction and make things worse. And that, what that does is it means that the young person as they grow up doesn't really know how to express their own feelings or how to process their own feelings because their whole focus has been on keeping the adult together. Okay, I don't know if you've been familiar with this in your work at all, but often young people can be really anxious about their parents or about the parent if it's a single parent family. And what that does is it means that they suppress all of their own sort of issues in a way because they don't want to upset the apple cart. They don't want to make things worse for the parent. So um, the other thing that can happen in relationships is that the person with the addiction uh, can become very deceptive, a bit like this chap who lost his house. Um, they don't necessarily tell the truth about what they've been doing. In fact, they might deny it completely. And, and say they have no knowledge of how all that money got spent 
or why they have no money left, or where those drugs came from in their bedroom, or where that needle came from in the bin. No idea about that. Somebody else must have put it there. That kind of thing. And this isn't necessarily just deception for the sake of deception. I think it's to some extent because the person is going to find it difficult to admit to themselves, really, what they've been doing. Not simply that they want to deny it to other people. Uh, <clears throat> the other thing that can happen is that the young person might become more and more unreliable. They might stop turning up at meetings. They might stop going to school. They might start truanting. And so the first time that somebody hears about a problem might be when the school is on the phone to the parent um, saying, you know, we haven't seen them in school. We don't know what's going on. Do you, do, are they okay? Um, because the young person isn't likely to ask for help. They're more likely to act out the problem and then help might uh, come later. Okay, so should we think a bit about how this all comes about in the first place? What causes this? Let's look at the next slide. Now, I don't know if you can see this, but this is... Uh, no animals were harmed in the making of this slide, by the way. This donkey was fine, but it had a bit of an accident. Because what happened was it was carrying this very heavy load that was so heavy that it actually tipped the cart backwards, and the donkey found itself levitating into midair temporarily. And it was all, all fine and good. But this is the sort of thing that can happen to... Uh, well, to anyone, actually is that if you load enough stress onto somebody, they could flip out. Under enough stress, anybody actually could flip out. Even us. <laughs> anybody could flip out under enough stress. And my feeling about addiction is that what's happened often is that people are carrying such heavy loads, sometimes on behalf of other people, Sometimes because of the pain that's happened in their lives, whether it's through abuse or whether it's through neglect or whether it's just through th things that have happened to them. Bullying, of course, is quite a big issue for kids in school now, isn't it? You know, cyberbullying and things like this. The pressure and the stress that this can put somebody under can be okay for a while and then it just tips them over. It's like they can carry so much and then they can't carry it anymore. And I want to say that, really, because I think often the stress isn't the, the person's own stuff. It might be other stuff that they're carrying uh, on behalf of other people or that's been put on them. And then they, they kind of lose touch with the ground. They kind of lose touch with the, the reality of everyday life as they flip into the addiction. So it, this is how it can start, trying to take on too much or carry too heavy a load. Um, I have kids who are in uh, the first year of A-levels at the moment, and I've got one who's just gone through that process. How stressful is that? I mean, I'm just talking about myself now. I don't really, I'm not thinking about the, the children in, or the kids. I'm thinking just for me, it's really stressful. Um, because the pressure that kids are under these days in schools to, to do this or that, to say what they're going to do with their lives when they're quite young still, they have no idea what they're going to do with their lives, often. Sometimes they do, but often they haven't really got any idea. And uh, these are the sorts of things that can put kids under stress. And that's before we get into the more serious issues of abuse um, or bullying and things like that. So trying to too carry too much and not being able to cope with it is one of the issues that can trigger addiction. Um, I should just say, I think, at this point, that some of the most recent research about young people and uh, alcohol addiction from the Roundtree uh, Foundation, I always forget if it's foundational trust, says that a lot of young people that they surveyed actually are able to limit themselves when it comes to drinking. So if we have this idea that it's completely out of control, well, yes, there is an element of that. But what they found in this study was... Uh, and this is really recent from 2011, is that a lot of young people will go so far and then because of group pressure will know where to draw the line. Uh, so, for example, being sick in front of your friends is often not socially a good idea. 
I mean, just for anyone, really. But basically, for young people, that's a no-no, often. And, if, and for many groups or um, social networks, that would be unacceptable. So there is an ability to limit to a point. Let's uh, think about other causes. Uh, this is the next slide. And this is really just a little list here. The first is painful insecurity. There could have been painful experiences either in early life or more recently. This could involve loss or trauma. Often I think it's to do with not feeling attached very well to other people. What we would call in the profession attachment issues. Uh, that's not necessarily just with mum, it could be with dad as well. But whoever the primary caregiver is, if the young person doesn't feel they're really attached to them, then it can leave them feeling that they're sort of floating in space. And if someone's floating in space, they tend to want to grab onto something that makes them feel a bit more secure. And that could be um, something that becomes an addiction. The person might have experienced loss, as in the death of somebody that was close to them. Uh, that, that could be quite a serious loss, particularly if it's a parent. Um, a sense of being excluded by the group can be very serious for young people. If, if they don't look right, you know, if they're not chosen to be part of the group or the gang, then in a way it's like a social death. And you know, if we think about other cultures and how uh, societies around the world work, often when people are excluded from the group, they start to get ill. They start to become unwell. So I think exclusion and feeling separate and isolated uh, are quite serious issues that can lead someone to reach out for drugs or alcohol uh, or whatever. So this is painful insecurity. And what happens then is that the addiction sort of fills that gap. So a gap is created by the loss of connection with a person, which is really how infants and young people learn how to operate in the world and how to feel okay about themselves is through relationship with a person and, and, and a group. But if that's not there, then there's a sort of gap opens up. And you may have heard people say sometimes, I just feel empty inside, like there's nothing there. And this is because they don't really feel connected. They feel disconnected and isolated. And in those circumstances, the most natural thing to do is to just reach for something that takes the feeling away. Because it's a very difficult feeling to stay with. Um, anxiety, difficulty in managing feelings, social shyness. A lot of young people find it difficult to socialise unless they've had a drink before they go out. Just because they feel shy, maybe, you know, of the opposite sex and the whole dating thing can be quite a big issue. So the easier thing to do is to avoid that or medicate that stress with uh, a substance like alcohol. And then things can become a habit. The other reason that the Roundtree Foundation found that young people drink is often because they enjoy it. They enjoy it. And they have a lot of fun drinking in gangs and groups together. It's not necessarily starting off for any other reason than that. So although I'm talking about quite sort of difficult causes perhaps for people, sometimes it can simply be that this is what the group does and then it can sort of escalate from there. Okay, well let's think a bit about how we can help and uh, what we can do about all this. These are just some principles that I think might be useful that you might want to uh, take away. Uh, the first of these is that it's really important if you're working with someone with an addiction that you show yourself to be safe. Uh, part of the safety issue is actually physical. People, particularly if they're into substance addictions, can put themselves into very risky situations where they can be taken advantage of if they're drunk in the street, for example. Uh, this is where street pastors, are you familiar with the work of street pastors? That street pastors can be uh, often coming along in those situations and, and helping people just to be safe when they've become so intoxicated that they uh, are not able to look after themselves. So at a really basic level, what we're talking about here is physical safety. Helping people uh, to get 
out of the area that they're in or if they need medical attention and that sort of thing. But what's more likely to be uh, the area that you're looking at is emotional safety. You know, when people have got themselves caught up in an addiction, they really find it difficult to trust other people. Um, but what's happened in the process is that the person has a part of themselves that they don't know what to do with. They, they, they have something going on in themselves that feels deeply uncomfortable, deeply scary perhaps, causes them to be anxious. There's usually a high level of anxiety going on. They don't really know what to do with that. For some reason or another, they've figured out that they can't really talk to other people about it or trust other people with that bit of themselves. So they often present as being quite good and the bad bit in their mind gets pushed somewhere else. So what this means is that if they start acting out and going into their addiction, which is the bad bit, they don't tend to know how to tell anyone about it or talk about it or even think about it in their own minds. So it gets kind of locked down into a little compartment that uh, is separate. But if we're thinking about how to help people, it's really important that we enable people to tell us what's going on in the bad bit. That they don't have to be good with us, they don't have to be on their best behavior, that they can tell us what's going on in the bad side of life. And this is something that I think organizations you know, like here are really uh, addressing now in the church more, more widely, is that the church could be a place, can be a place, and I believe is a place, where people can be themselves. It hasn't always been the case, unfortunately, in the church, that people could bring the darker sides of themselves in and have those accepted. But if we're going to help people with these sorts of issues know the love of God and know that they are part of the family of God and that God really cares about them, then it's very important that we give hospitality to the negative dark sides of people's lives. That would be the word I would use, hospitality. That we are providing a safe place, emotionally safe place, where they're not going to be taken advantage of, they're not going to be put down or criticized, where they can simply bring the bad side of life into relationship with us. Does that make sense? It's a really important part of the process, I think, for healing. Because otherwise what will happen is people will sort of superficially seem to be healed or better, but they've not actually dealt with the, this compartment where all of the pain is held and the addiction comes from. So it'll flare up again. And if we're going to do that, um, it's very important not to uh, judge people. This is the next slide, I think. That we, you know, one of the things about the community that I'm in at the moment is that it's, it's a very affirming and accepting place. And a lot of the people that come into this network that we could call church wouldn't usually go to church. And when you ask them why they wouldn't usually go to church, it's because they, they might say, well, I would feel judged. Or I wouldn't feel included or accepted. And that might be because there's things going on in their lives that are difficult even addictive. So I think the first thing uh, in terms of us as a church community to think about is how we create a safe space for people to come into where they don't feel judged and they feel accepted and loved. Because I, th I, I think if people feel accepted and loved, and that can take some time for that idea to really percolate through, then in a way you've addressed a lot of the problem a lot of the problem with the addiction is that people don't feel loved, don't feel accepted, and don't actually feel they can accept themselves. So they are effectively rejecting a part of themselves all the time. So to come into a community and find that that very part that they thought was so wrong and so disordered and unacceptable is loved because it's them, it's part of them, and not judged is very healing. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we don't uh, want to help people think along biblical lines about what's best for them and what's good for them and to grow into maturity. 
But I think the first principle is not condemnation, but acceptance. That's really important. Because they'll do enough condemnation for everybody that anyway. So any more condemnation and they're going to be out of there. They're gone. They don't really need any help to be condemning. They, they've got that down. Um, then we need to emphasize the alternatives. I mean, one of the things that really strikes me about working in church culture is it should be fun. I mean, not only should it be fun, but it should be more fun than taking drugs. Because otherwise what happens is somebody, they've been taking drugs, they've been living a fast life, uh, they've been getting into all sorts of trouble, they've probably had quite a lot of fun with it. If you talk to a lot of recovering alcoholics, they would probably say, yes, there was despair and there was depression, but there was quite a lot of fun as well. And so you talk to somebody like this, they come into the church, it could be a young person, and they've been living a really wild life, and you say to them, now I want you to give all that up to come and sit here and sing a few hymns from the 19th century on a Sunday morning and then go home. And they're going to say, you want me to give up drugs for that? I don't think so, because that is more fun than this. You must be joking. So church surely has to be more fun than drugs. That's the bottom line. Surely, being in a church community of believers who love the Lord and know that they are loved by the Lord, where there is redemption from sin, a, a, a destruction of condemnation, and a community where people genuinely love and accept each other, now that's attractive. That's worth giving up drugs for. But if it's anything less, the chances are that it won't really work for the person who's been addicted. Because the one thing about addiction is that it, it's a huge rush of adrenaline and fun. Now, I'm not saying that church should be like a theme park either. You know, we're not trying to change church into Alton Towers. But surely, church should be pointing towards what is great, what is holy, what is amazing, what is awesome, what is overwhelmingly exciting in the face of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis talked about this, and the way he described it, and Rob Bell picks up on this quite a bit as well, in a very good book actually called Sex God, if you're um, interested in his take on that. And what C.S. Lewis talked about was it's like making mud pies in the sand. You know, fiddling around, making these little mud pies in the sand, which are so easily washed away when we have the glory of heaven in front of us. But our eyes go down to these little things. And, we th and people who are addicted, for them that is the world. These little things that fill up the whole of their lives. But what we're holding out to people and what we're offering is the glory of heaven. I believe the glory of heaven isn't just some future event either. But I believe the glory of heaven is a way of living in the world now. Not just in the future. I mean a radical change in terms of the way we live out our lives according to kingdom principles now. And I believe also that without that, people who are addicted are probably going to think twice before giving up the addiction unless they see something that's radically different that is to do with a kingdom of love, acceptance and grace rather than a kingdom of judgment and criticism which they're living in in any case. Okay? Have I overdone it on that? Perhaps I have. No, I haven't. I think that's fine. <laughs> okay, the next thing from a very practical point of view is that it's very important to uh, make a plan with uh, people in terms of how they're going to stop doing their uh, activity. This is a very practical idea, actually. And I would recommend actually writing it down on a bit of paper with the person so that before they get themselves into the situation where they're being triggered and they're starting off with their addiction, who are they going to call? Is there somebody they could text? Is there another activity they could do instead that, that, that would be fun for them? For a lot of people, it would be doing sport or doing some sort of active uh, physical activity. So to think about that in advance can be really good. 
And uh, finally, because I just want to give a couple of minutes for questions, I want to point you to, perhaps when you leave here, to look at the, the story of Jesus talking to the woman at the well in John 4. And there's various aspects to this story that I think speak to the whole issue of getting alongside people with addictions. But the one I want to highlight is that Jesus was not afraid to ask her about the difficult areas of her life. And so there was a beautiful balance between asking her about her husband and then she comes out with the information that, well, she's had a, a brokenness in the area of relationships. On one hand, he addresses the issue. He doesn't duck it, he doesn't dive it, he doesn't skirt around it. But in the other hand, there is love and acceptance. Not only love and acceptance in a kind of woolly way, but there is the offering of the water of life instead of the water that the woman has been drawing for herself. So in other words, it's the difference between a self-made life and a life that the person can receive from the source of all life, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, let's stop at that point. Um, if you have any questions, I'll just take a few now before we finish in five minutes. Yeah, I don't know if we have another microphone. But yeah, go ahead. It's quite a simple question, really, but maybe quite basic. But we spoke a bit earlier about uh, likening sort of addictions to habits. And I wondered if it would be useful to say a bit about how we discern between what is a sort of a day-to-day -day habit and what's bordering on an addiction. Okay, so the question about uh, when is it a habit and when it is addiction. I think it's really important to highlight that a lot of the things I'm talking about can be just habits. And we don't want to go into a condemnation kind of thing about, oh, I, I must be addicted because there's a big difference between a habit, which is that someone might just do something in a kind of habitual way, and when it deteriorates into a full-blown addiction. And I think one of the main markers of that is when the person needs that thing to complete themselves. They need that thing because that thing props up their identity. Without that thing, they feel like they are going to fall apart and cease to function. So this is the sort of scenario I was talking about earlier of the alcoholic who might need to take a drink in the morning before they can even actually get out of bed. So it's just to function basically, there was that profound need to fill that gap inside with whatever the addiction is at the level of their identity. Yeah. Uh, what do you do when you've got someone who um, obviously has an addiction, um, chooses to tell you. It's kind of that thing about being manipulated and you're constantly having to kind of put barriers to a stop to it. But the person still continu is continuing and refusing to kind of, you know, move from their stance. They're asking for help, but they're not. Well, I mean, this is something that's really common is that people might say, help me, help me, help me. But in fact, the behavior is going, no, don't, don't, don't because I'm going to carry, carry on doing this thing. I think the first thing to understand is that the person's doing it because um, not out of any kind of willful desire to be difficult, but because they need it, because it's their way of holding life together uh, in the best way that they can at that time. So this is where we need the kind of acceptance and love and resilience, actually. It's kind of quite important to be able to stick with it when people are doing that. But at the on the other hand, it's also important to, in a sense, gently, and this is what people call tough love sometimes, let people know that there are consequences to what they're doing, not least for their family and the people that are close to them sometimes. And in addiction treatment programs, that's often one of the main parts of the program, is to enable people to start thinking about the consequences of what they're doing, particularly on their families. So it's a balance, really, between acceptance and feedback. Okay, I think we can just do one more, and then that's it. And I'll try and answer this one a bit quicker. Um, I work in the criminal justice system, and um, we deal with a lot of cases. I'm on behalf of the prosecution. A lot of cases now with young people, um, major problems with Facebook and BBM. And, and what I see in comparison, like from what you've said here, we're talking addictions. It's as serious as that. They really can't function without it, and we see a lot of problems created by it. How do you think it's best to begin to tackle that? Because it's something that's acceptable in society and it's not 
at first glance an addiction that you'd recognise, but it's a really major problem. Okay, um, as I was saying earlier, I've got uh, teenage kids, and so I know only too well the issues of Facebook. The thing about Facebook and any of the social networking sites is that kids can get very hooked on them, and they may need to actually detox from that. So we're into the kind of process of doing it like an hour less a day uh, and gradually sort of weaning down, and even having a holiday from it might be a good idea just for a period of time. So a very structured sort of approach with that. Okay, I'm going to finish at that point. Thank you very much for being such a good uh, audience to hear what I've been saying. Andre, thank you so much. You never disappoint us.